0: Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, gender queer, and intersex experiences. I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they. And I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. Today, we're talking with Amelia Bingham, and we're so excited to have this conversation. But before we jump into that, we want to talk about what brought us queer joy this week. So Colette, what brought you queer joy this week?
1: So what brought me for joy was last night was the Miracle of Forgiveness Gala. I really think Kyle Ashworth of latter Stories should have called it – he missed an opportunity by calling it a gala instead of a gala. Come on, Kyle. <laughs> but it was really neat. The idea behind that, Latter-Gay Stories, Kyle Ashworth is the host of that podcast. And he kind of started this initiative of Miracle of Forgiveness – has really hurt a lot of people, queer people in particular, but a lot of people. And so he started this campaign of Trash the Stash, of collecting copies of The Miracle of Forgiveness. And I think they've collected over 6,000 copies, just generally from like Deseret Industries stores. And he pointed out, we're not the ones getting rid of them. Y'all Mormons who donate to Deseret Industries instead of just getting rid of it then. But (laughs) the idea with this gala was... To take these copies that people have trashed and turn it into art. And so it was just beautiful that people, there are all sorts of art, a lot of queer themed, a lot of rainbows, which I'm a huge fan of. But these beautiful pieces of art, there was Justin Utley did this beautiful song as part of the program called Scars, if you want to look that up. And I sat at this table with a bunch of queer women I'm friends with, and it was just so neat to be in community with a lot of other queer people and see something that's caused so much pain be transformed into something beautiful and a community. So that was my queer joy from yesterday. Awesome.
0: That's like enough queer joy for everybody. I (laughs) I love that. I was sad not to be there, especially seeing all the after photos. It looks like it was Mm -hmm. like a real,
1: it was quite the event. It was fun. I I really hope he makes it, you know, more of an annual thing. Just having, as you and I have talked before, Kate, just the community is so needed Mm -hmm. and important. And so to be, for me, with a bunch of queer women but there was a bunch of other queer people and then Natasha Helfer, who I work with, was there and just seeing people I know from different capacities with mama dragons and different things, it was a fun, fun night.
0: Cool. Yeah, I do have queer joy. I'll give mine too. So I've been working on a document with Ruth from Review and Revise and Channing and Elise from The Faithful Feminists. And We're putting this together and it's so nice to be able to talk about gender with people who are ready to be able to have that conversation. What I'm finding is it's really difficult to talk about gender on a level that I want to talk about it, right? And Elise and I last night... I don't even know. Nights have blurred together this week. We talked together on the phone and it was just so nice to be able to speak with somebody who I could speak with and and not have to explain any sort of definition to, at least does a lot of gender academic work. And so it was really nice to be able to just feel comfortable and not need to explain anything.
1: Oh, That's so, so nice. And what you all created was amazing and such a needed conversation I feel there's been a lot of talk about Heavenly Mother lately and it really did ignore queerness and I'm really grateful that the four of you took this time to write this really important document and I hope individuals take the time to go read it and I'm really grateful that they were able to hold space for you as you work through some of your own thoughts to then share with others
0: yeah thanks Okay, Amelia, how about your queer joy?
2: Yeah, I've been thinking about my queer joy this week preparing for this. And one of the things that has just kept coming back to me, I've lived in Boston for a year and a half, almost two years, maybe coming from Utah, where I went to school and from Idaho, where I grew up. And so you can imagine Boston's a pretty different place. And one of the things I love, the neighborhood I live in has a lot of small businesses, like locally owned, like queer owned, women owned, BIPOC owned, like just little shops and stores. And I love that. But something I realized this week as I was kind of thinking about this is that everywhere else I've lived, when I see like a pride flag in a window, it feels like a safe space, but it also feels like kind of an act of rebellion in a way, like it's pushing back against this culture. And I realized that here, when I see like a pride flag or different things like rainbows, it's just a celebration, like it's not having to also be an act of rebellion. And I think both are good. But it's been A breath of fresh air to recognize that can just be like a celebration and it doesn't have to be also taking a stand and it it can just be, we can just celebrate and we can just be happy in who we are. And so that's something that like I've really loved recently.
0: Thank you for bringing that up because that's so interesting because I know exactly what you're talking about. I think so many people who are listening to this know exactly what you're talking about. That queerness is sometimes in itself, made to be political in more conservative places. And so being in a place where it's just an identity to be celebrated is very different. So I'm grateful that you get that experience.
1: Yeah,
2: it's great.
1: <laughs> and we're so grateful to have you here. For listeners, Amelia is a listener and reached out to us saying, hey, I really want you to kind of Are you planning on talking about these sort of issues? We're like, we'd love to. And then we're like, wait a minute. Why don't we just have you on to talk about it? (laughs) So as we begin, would you mind doing your Queer in 60 Seconds or your Queer Mormon story, however long it takes, so people can get to know you a little bit and we can go from there?
2: Yeah. So my name's Amelia. My pronouns are she, her. And I guess like my identity is asexual. And that's something like I didn't even have vocabulary for. I'd never even heard that until I was in college for a few years. And so with that, it's only been mostly as I've been looking back that I've been able to pinpoint like that wasn't like normal, quote unquote normal, like when I did that or like that was kind of different from the experience my peers were having. But I was a freshman in college, so I was like 21 and I read an article, I don't even know how it showed up in like my Facebook feed, but it was about demisexual. And I read that and I was like, this actually sounds like maybe I connect with this. And so that was like my first step into like, at that point, I don't think I really understood that there were more identities than like straight, gay and lesbian. And so that was kind of my first peek into maybe there's like other options, there's other things out there. And for a while, like maybe a year and a half, I really identified with that as I am probably attracted to people once I know them. And the reason why like, that was my initial thought was because I do have a romantic orientation. And so some asexual people like there's the asexual spectrum, there's the aromantic spectrum. And so like some people fall both asexual, both aromantic. And I that's not my experience. And so a couple years after I learned about demisexual, I learned that there are these different types of orientations and attractions. And you can be romantically attracted or aesthetically attracted or sexually attracted. And that was what really kind of let me put together the rest of the pieces and really be able to claim asexual as a part of my identity, which in turn, that was the point where like everything else made sense. That was the point where I looked back at some of those experiences I had growing up and like, oh yeah, that's why all of my peers could be like, oh yeah, this is who I have a crush on. And then I would have to do like all of these mental calculations to be like, okay, who would it make sense for me to have a crush on, but also who no one would push me to go and talk to. Just all of that kind of mental gymnastics that I was so used to doing finally made sense. And so over the last few years, as I've been able to tease out what that means for me, what that means for like my relationships, it's just been a great experience to kind of bring a lot of peace and understanding that about myself. Cool. Thank
0: you. Yeah. I love that you end by saying, yeah, it's brought me a lot of peace because I think that is what the intention for labels is to figure out the language that helps you understand yourself a little bit better. So it sounds like there have been several. Pieces and language or words that have helped you get there, which I would like to go through piece by piece because you brought up a lot of terminology that some people might not be aware of. But maybe we can get just a little bit of background. You said you grew up in Idaho and you moved to Utah. Could, could maybe we get some yes. a little bit more just- background?
2: Of course. So I grew up in Idaho in a little town called Haley, which is near Sun Valley, which is a ski resort. And so it wasn't really like the farms and potatoes situation for me. And that was a very interesting experience in and of itself, because Idaho is pretty conservative, but Sun Valley is a pretty liberal area. And then growing up in the LDS church, like that dynamic. And so it was a very interesting experience growing up there. I served a mission in Chile, learned Spanish, came back, went to BYU to study psychology. I've known since high school that I wanted to be some sort of a therapist. So I was really pursuing that. And now I am in Boston going to Boston College for a master's of social work. And that has been a beautiful experience. I'm loving it here. I'm interning at a middle school working with kids that are like referred to like our program. And so that's been really exciting. And I'm part of a cohort called the Latinx Leadership Initiative, which is basically focusing on creating culturally competent bilingual clinicians. And so That has been a really amazing experience for me to learn more of those pieces that maybe I can be fluent in Spanish, but I am still a white woman. I'm still an Anglo-Saxon white woman. And so there's just a lot of culture that I, I can't just go and be a bilingual clinician and think that's enough. And so that's been a really great experience to Learn some of the cultural aspects and like cultural humility that I I need if that's the population that I want to be working with. I love focusing on healing from trauma. So I want to be a trauma-focused therapist. And the thing I love about that is that it like centers on everything. Like I can work with all sorts of different experiences people have gone through, like situations people are in. And I just love that diversity that allows for. Very cool. Very exciting stuff.
1: Seriously, I didn't know you were trained to be a therapist. So I'm like, yeah, social workers unite. Yes, (laughs) And I love that you're wanting to focus on trauma. I was, I've been reflecting a lot this last week because it just came up in my memories that, oh, I graduated with my MSW 10 years ago now, which is insane to me. And I feel like there wasn't as much of a focus on trauma, which blows my mind because we know trauma impacts everything. But I feel like even a decade ago, that wasn't as recognized. And so it's so nice that more and more programs are becoming so trauma focused and therapists are mm-hmm. becoming more trauma informed. So we can really help people not re-traumatize them as we're working with them.
2: Yeah. And that's one of the things that has really brought me to the Latinx Leadership Initiative is In the practice I've done between undergrad and grad school, like realizing that there's especially a gap there where, like, I would have clients that I wanted to refer to someone that could specifically help with their trauma, and they'd end up on like wait lists for a year because there just weren't those services available. And especially just with all of the intersections and additional ways that our Latinx folks can be even more traumatized in our white racist society. So if I can help there, that's something I want to be fully competent to be able to do.
0: Amazing, amazing. Good luck with finishing all that up. Thank you. That's exciting. <laughs> so you said that you started to associate more with a demisexual a couple of years into BYU. So you'd already been on a mission and you'd already kind of had outside of... Our, I think that once we get outside of our hometowns, so at least that was my experience, once I got outside of my hometown, I started to see the world a little bit differently. So you've just had this big experience of being in Chile on a mission and then going to BYU. And that's when you started to make these connections. Is that right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, to me, it's kind of a funny story because especially when you're a freshman and especially where I was living on campus in the 19 and up housing that BYU has. So it's kind of targeted towards returned missionaries who are freshmen. But then also I had some roommates. I was actually the only RM. So most of my roommates were sophomores who this was their second year at school and they still wanted to live on campus. And so there was this whole thing of Amelia's are most eligible, like we're going to put a sign in the window that says like most eligible. And I was like, (laughs) no, let's not do that. And that was a good joke, but also hugely uncomfortable for me. But at the same time, what do freshmen RMs at BYU do? It's all about dating. It's all about all of that. I like making friends. I'm a very extroverted person. And so I was never opposed to going on a date with someone. But there was this one point where there was like three different guys that had been asking me out. I'd been on a few dates with each of them. And my roommates were like, so who are you going to choose? Who are you going to choose? I was like, this guy's kind of cool. I can talk to all of them. I don't know if there's anything that sets any of them apart from any of the rest of them, which I'm sorry if that sounds harsh. But I was just like, they're all fine, but like not special. <laughs> and that was when I maybe cued into like, because none of my roommates, none of my friends that I was talking to about this got that. They were like, there has to be someone. Who do you think's even more attractive? And I was like, I don't know. They're all fine. I didn't have more than that. It was fine. This was fine. It was fine hanging out with them. But it was all just fine. And so that was like maybe the first cue that I had that maybe even made me open to when that article came across that maybe I'm not exactly straight. Maybe I'm not exactly like heterosexual. The label demisexual left room for me. I could have a romantic connection with someone someday because at the time I was like I'm asexual which I didn't even have that terminology but if I'm not attracted to anyone ever I'm just gonna be alone forever is how I felt which is not like a super fun place to be
0: especially at BYU yeah
2: when you're when the it- most eligible roommate <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah that's really uncomfortable and is. It's disconcerting. You don't know like how to pe- make these pieces fit together. I would like to ask about how you then once you accepted or brought in this term demisexual, how you then thought about marriage and church and this plan of salvation. How did that how were all of those things impacted by this newfound understanding of yourself?
2: Yeah, this is maybe like, one of the strongest arguments I have for like, our orientations are innate and always with us, because I don't know if anything really changed, because I never really had this drive. Like, I remember being young and being like, I don't want to get married and never outgrowing that. And I don't want to have kids and, and never outgrowing that. And so all of these things that people were like, oh, like, when you grow up, it'll be different. So I think I'd already been living in this space where not that I'd accepted that or that that was an option and that hasn't even ended up being the path that I've taken, but I didn't feel like that was okay. But I'd also been living with that my whole life where I felt like, I was going to have to get married whether I wanted to or not to like be a part of this plan and to make my heavenly father, mother, whoever happy, to make God happy. That was just something I was gonna have to deal with and live with. And it sounded miserable, but there's this promise that I'd be happier in the end if I did that. And so I think if nothing else, maybe coming to terms with there's a label for this experience that I'm having maybe just I don't know it was like at least an explanation and I was like okay now at least I know why it's gonna be like this and that was kind of how that settled with me I guess.
0: I think you're tapping into something really crucial there's something that you said that was like this is my experience and people are expecting something different out of me just because that is the expectation right that this is what we're going to do and when you're having your whole life leading up to this point saying, this isn't what I want. I feel this deep inside me that this isn't something that I want. And yet it's being pushed and pushed that at what point do we stop and think it's worthwhile to think what we want? It's worthwhile to accept certain things about ourselves and embrace certain things about ourselves in order to not just have to put up with, being married or getting married or doing something that we don't want to do. So I think it's it would be a good idea at this point to talk about what demisexuality is and how it fits under the asexual umbrella.
2: Yes. So... To define first, I think we'll start broad with asexuality and work our way down. Basically, asexuality is an orientation where you do not experience sexual attraction to anyone. And under that, we call it the ace umbrella. Ace is short for asexual. I kind of think that's cool. But you have a variety of different orientations. But the main ones are probably gray sexual or gray ace and demisexual and gray ace would be someone who like in the majority of situations or maybe even just like some situations they definitely have periods of time where they are asexual where they don't experience that sexual attraction but from time to time maybe they do and it's not like person specific it's not necessarily situation specific it's just like sometimes they don't and I think this is where it's also important to define and make it clear that your sexual attraction is different from your sex drive or your libido. And so you can have people on this whole ace spectrum who maybe don't have any sex drive or maybe actually have pretty strong sex drive. There's a meme that I feel like captures this and it's like someone's like I want sex and then someone says with who and they say no who just sex. Um, And I think that captures like kind of that possibility pretty well but then demisexual is someone who is not going to experience sexual attraction to someone until they already have a a pretty strong emotional connection to someone and so that's again like different than just you don't want to sleep with someone until you know them it's not just someone who's not going to have one night stands it's actually you're looking around and you do not see anyone that you're like I'm attracted to that. And then once maybe you get to know someone, then you realize, oh, like maybe I am attracted. So that would be what demisexual would look like.
1: Thank you for that clarification. I actually identify as demisexual. And that language was really helpful for me, kind of like your experience as far as, oh, like this just makes more sense now. Because I would kind of do the same thing. Like, that calculation of, okay, who do I have a crush on? And it was like, but no one, because I didn't have an emotional connection with anyone. I can recognize when people are attractive. Like I know from society's standards of beauty, I can recognize when people are sexually attractive or physically attractive, but that doesn't mean I'm sexually attracted to them. Like I've never understood people who were like, oh my gosh, I just want to go make out with them. And I'm like, but you don't know them. Like, why would you do that? <laughs> like, I, I know logically how that happens, but that's just not my experience. I talked a little bit about my experience on questions from the closet about my experience with sexuality, but it was interesting for me as they were asking me questions. I'm like, wait a minute. Like I've really leaned into my queerness and just saying I'm gay or lesbian, but I don't think I've really examined much about my demisexuality. It's a great label for me to understand my experience, but I hadn't examined it a lot. So I love talking to you and hearing your experience. And I'm hoping more people can understand this is an orientation. This is something that maybe resonates with you or someone you know, and it's not something that you chose. So Mm -hmm. thank you for speaking to this.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up your questions from the closet episode, because I I also listened to questions from the closet. So I heard that I love that. But something that caught my attention, I guess, and no shade to Charlie Bird, Charlie's great. But I wrote down this quote, I think he said, I don't feel like I need a secondary attraction to what kind of gay I am. And that can be someone's experience. And that's fine. But it just also made me think like, well, I do or someone else might. And this is where I mentioned before kind of the difference between sexual attraction and romantic attraction, which is kind of where I fall on the ace spectrum is I consider myself completely asexual, like not demi, not gray, but I do have romantic orientation and I'm not because of how that works, I'm not sure if it's explicitly 100% hetero romantic or if there's more room there, but there are people who might be asexual and panromantic or asexual and homoromantic. And so having both of those labels, I think can be really empowering for a lot of people. And I don't know if it's like what type of gay you are, what type of ace you are, I think it's just these are all parts of who we are. And just like, our sexual attraction isn't the only facet to our identity. I think understanding that like your sexual attraction and your romantic attraction don't have to be exactly the same don't have to like always line up in the same ways I think is like a really important distinction to make for anyone when I hear people talk about oh yeah like maybe they're very attracted to this person but there's no romantic connection there maybe they never get a romantic connection there maybe that's just not who they're oriented to romantically and so having, like, language for that or understanding of that, like, to me is very important.
0: I agree. And we talk a lot about bi but I think that asexual urature is a really big problem within the queer community as well, that exactly what you're talking about, there is... A letter, first of all, dedicated in the LGBTQIA, it's not allies. Some people think it's ally. It stands for asexual or aromantic. The A is for this sexual orientation, and it's equally important to all the other letters that we welcome and embrace and accept everybody's different letter that comes to the table. And I think that one that gets forgotten and dismissed often is asexual. When it's actually a really, what you're talking about is really complex and interesting once we're thinking more about separating out sexuality from romantic orientation. I think that asexual folks are able to talk about that best and all of us, no matter who we are, benefits from that conversation and understanding about those things about ourselves. I think you've done a pretty good job of explaining these differences between sexual orientation and romantic orientation. Did you have anything more to say about the distinctions between those? No.
2: Just that it can be messy, especially if you don't realize that those can be different. I think it can be really messy and confusing to sometimes figure out what feels good and comforting for you as far as a label goes, because you might not land on something if you're not aware of that difference. And not that people need labels, but if that's something that's helpful for you, like understanding that I think is really crucial.
1: Absolutely. I think it's so crucial. It was interesting. I haven't gone back to listen to my questions from the closet episode. I'm like, I hear enough of my voice with our own podcast. But talking to people who had listened to it and they thought it was interesting, especially when I was talking to AFAB people in the queer community. That they were like, yeah, what you said makes total sense. And it's something I think about in regards to the distinctions between sexual, romantic, just all the different types of orientation. And it seemed to be a little bit of a new concept to Charlie and Ben. And so that was just an interesting conversation. And I thought that was interesting that I don't know if AFAB people tend to examine this more than cis queer men. It was just very interesting that I'm like this is something I think about a lot. Like how do you how have you not examined this part of your identity and orientation? I just thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah. I thought it was a very good episode, but Kate mentioned AC Razor and in the society that we live in, I think it can be very easy even for us to erase ourselves and even still here I am like years after being like light bulb moment this is what feels like a good explanation for who I am and how I experience the world there's still times where I'm like maybe everyone's just this way and that's as an ace person that's something that An ace AFAB person, something that is unfortunately like a really common response you get when you come out to people is, well, no, that's just how everyone is, or he's always going to want it more than you do. Things like that are like really invalidating, but we hear that everywhere. It's easy to do that to yourself too. And so hearing like experiences that podcast episode was very affirming for me of no, there is like this distinction. And yes, this is part of who I am. And it's not how everyone is because not everyone is this way.
1: And I I appreciate you talking to the erasure because it is interesting being in the field of work I'm in. I do have a lot of women as a sex therapist that come in and they wonder if they are asexual. And it's very possible that they could be. And I want to not erase that. And I also recognize that statistically speaking, the amount of women that come into my office and wonder if they're asexual is out of proportion to what we know the ace population is. And for a lot of them, it's not that they're asexual, it's that you have never been able to allow yourself to be a sexual person being raised in this purity culture. And so that's just been very interesting for me to wrestle with as a therapist of, I don't want to erase anybody and their identity. And I want them to explore what is your sexuality? If it's asexual, great. But is it asexuality, or is it you've been trained to not be a sexual person, so you think you're asexual? And I don't know if you can speak to that at all, but that's just been something I've been wrestling with in my practice of, I I just don't want to damage anybody. I want to recognize this is a real thing, and it may not be what you're experiencing. Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: I do. I think that was... Maybe one of the things that made me reach out to you initially was when you brought up something like that because I think we've all heard a lot of whether lesbian, gay men, a lot of different LGBTQ orientations where people might initially be like, I'll just be asexual and maybe that's like the first way they come out or it also happens with bisexual where maybe people are like, I'll just say I'm bi or I must be bi because there's no way I'm not like attracted to the people I'm quote unquote supposed to be attracted to. And like the first few times I heard that it was very, I don't know, made me feel something, right? And I thought about that more and I realized that when I was coming to terms, when I realized, no, I'm not semi you're ace, that was really hard because it kind of reinforced further this experience that I had already been having of I'm going to just have to find someone and I'm going to have to marry them and I'm not going to like it and I'm not going to want to. It would be easier if I was a lesbian because then I could explain to people why I don't want to date. And I was actually having a conversation with another ace friend this week and she said the same thing. And so that's two points of data. You can't make generalizations based off of that. But I think there is something to be said for the fact that I've heard multiple gay or lesbian, bi, pan folks say, I wish I was ace. And then here we are saying, I wish I was lesbian. I hope we can all find a place where we're happy and excited and like proud of who we are and not wishing we were something else. But I think there is something to be said about that. I think it's important that everyone, regardless if you're straight, if you're gay, if you're anything, to have a good sex education to have a good understanding of sexuality. And I think that can be like a starting point for someone who's wondering, maybe I'm ace, maybe I've just never been allowed to feel this before. But also, I think we have this weird dichotomy where AFAB people especially experience shame about being sexual beings or sexual people. But there's also shame if you're not. And that was what it was like for me is like thinking about having to get married someday and having to, whether I wanted to or not, it felt like I was going to have to be sexual. And there's shame around that too. And so how do we end up in this place where like you get shamed for being sexual, but you also get shamed for not being sexual, which I think is something that someone who is asexual would probably be experiencing more than someone who maybe is just experiencing like that repression.
0: Yeah. So I also identify as Demi, but I've sat in the in this in-between space that Colette is talking about. Am I Demi or have I been trained to turn off certain things? And I recognize now I've been thinking a lot recently about people I've liked and how I kind of have an aversion to ideas of these people who were really attractive to me, but that's because I've lost connection with them. I don't have any sort of intimate connection, even like speaking connection with them. So I've lost all of that. And I recognize, oh, that is Demi, right? That's what's going on here is that I do fall for people that I am connected with. And it's easy for me to fall out of love if I'm not connected with them. That was easier for me to figure out my demisexuality than thinking about falling for somebody. However, <laughs> I've also been thinking about how I've, since I've come out as non-binary, my relationship with men is very different. And coming out as, as lesbian made my relationship with men very different, but coming out as non-binary has been a lot different relationship with men because I now have connections that I didn't have before that I now like one of the guys, which is really awesome. It is just like a cool thing to finally have these guy friends that I've always looked for. And now like I've been kind of accepted as one of the guys now. And I realize that I'm making those deeper connections and I'm still not having any sort of deep enough connection that's going to make me attracted to a man. I feel like I'm one of these people in between that Colette is talking about. Am I this or am I not? But the language of it has been really helpful. Using and understanding and thinking about myself as Demi has been really helpful. Even if I discover that that term doesn't actually apply to what I'm feeling, using it now is really helpful for me. Sorry, that was like my whole diatribe that I've been thinking about since we (laughs) knew that we were going to interview you. So,
2: No, I love that because... I think, and this is why even though maybe I felt a little bit not thrilled when I hear people initially saying, oh, like, I'll just come out as asexual or like that. And what I've had to realize is that that doesn't invalidate me. It's just part of their journey. And I think, like you said, if all of us find out later that one part of what we've thought about ourselves actually doesn't fit. That's fine. And I think it's just part of continually evolving and, and understanding ourselves better.
0: Yeah. But I think what your point is and why you reached out to us is that there is this erasure that's happening and there is this sense of eventually you'll get to a different point and we need to leave space for it eventually I'm not going to get to that point. And I need you to validate where I am right now and where I plan to be in the future as well. Right? Is that accurate?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk more about the ace erasure idea. One of my really good friends came to terms with the fact that she's ace after she already married a guy. And that's just been really interesting for her because she's like, I feel like I'm a fake queer. Like, I know that A in LGBTQIA includes me, But I have passing privilege. I'm married to a guy in this hetero passing relationship and I love him and they have a fantastic relationship. And she says, but I feel like I'm fake. Like I'm not actually part of this community because I I pass. And is my sexual orientation really such a big enough part of my identity when I am married to my husband and I love him and he's great? I don't know if you can speak to that at all and how to kind of deal with maybe any internal turmoil that people have over, do I fit in this community? Like, uh, I know the A's there, but is this for me too?
2: Yeah, I actually have so many thoughts about this. So if I start to like ramble, you can bring me back in and ask a follow-up question and then I can keep going because that's... At this point in my journey, kind of where I find myself too. And initially, the same summer that I was kind of coming to terms with being asexual, I met an amazing person, we connected really well, and we're married now. And they're assigned male at birth identify as a gender but still typically present mostly in the masculine way to where people we look very straight passing we look very heterosexual. what you would expect to see sitting in the pews at church and so that has led to like I, I came out to some friends like kind of came out to my mom once to some of my siblings but then At that point, when I was getting married, I was like, do I even talk about this anymore? Like, is this even something that, like, anyone wants to hear about? And I think that's because with asexuality specifically, people often think about it as only having to do with sex. If you come out as one of the other letters in the acronym, I think people see that as saying something more about you than just who you are sleeping with or not maybe not everyone, but I think we're reaching a point where most people see that as more than just who you're sleeping with. But I think a lot of people both in and out of the queer community still see asexual as just who you're sleeping with, or rather not sleeping with. And so they're like, I don't care. Like, why are you talking to me about this, which is really hurtful, especially as I've specifically been identifying some of the ways that I think being asexuality influences my life, aside from just my romantic relationship and like seeing ways that like it, it peaks out in other aspects of my personality or in the way I interact with other people and like the way I see the world. And I think it can be really hard to want to claim that label or feel like you can claim that label because you do get people on both sides that are like, "Okay, cool, but why do I care about this? Like why are you even telling me this?" And it kind of creates this uncomfortable space where a lot of the times I feel like it can be hard to speak up because I don't feel like people will see me as being a voice who is a part of the LGBTQ+ plus community but also if I am speaking up just as an ally that also feels like I'm missing something like that also feels like I'm having to hide who I am which isn't what I want to do and so it can make it very hard to be in that space because I do connect with this queer label this label that's outside of the heteronorm but it's hard for other people to, to see and recognize and accept that too. And so that can be, it's a very hard experience and a hard space to be in. But I think what I've found to be helping the most with that is to talk about it. And so whether it's like some of the friends I'm making at school, whether it's like I have a cute little ACE sticker on my laptop, making that like visible enough to where it's something people kind of have to come to terms with has been helpful and helped me to find more confidence in myself too, which I think has been the happiest point is like learning and kind of coming into this space where I can be married in a straight passing relationship and also be asexual and that it doesn't mean I can't be both. I can't be proud of this part of me.
0: Actually, I really love that, and I think that what you're pointing out is something that comes up every single June, especially with Latter-day Saints, and that is, why do I need pride? Why do we need pride? I don't need to go to this. I don't want the rainbows. I'm just my, my own thing. But what you're talking about is something I think that lots of the queer community talks about that... No, there has to be this sense of I understand myself, I want to celebrate myself and I want to celebrate what I feel seen in somebody else as well. I want to have that connection and that. Do you find that in queer communities? Do you feel like you have a lot of support within queer communities, either in Boston or Utah or Idaho or online?
2: I think it depends on the space. I have a lot of queer friends from Utah and we all kind of came into our queerness around the same time. And so in that way, it was a lot of late night conversations where it's like, I think that this, because this and this experience, and then they don't even so much respond to you as be like, yeah, and this is what I'm experiencing and all figuring this out together and bouncing stuff off each other. And so in that way, because we all kind of came into that together I think the queer community I have from Utah, I feel very accepted because we were all kind of working that out. And it was very obvious how asexuality is an inherently queer experience. And then here in Boston, I wasn't sure what to expect, but like one of the first friends I made is in the queer community. And eventually I kind of came out to her and she was like, oh, cool, like I'm also on the ace spectrum. And so that was like a very affirming moment where like now – I know that when we're together, it doesn't matter who else is there. I'm accepted and I'm valid. And I think that with my classmates, with most of the people I've interacted with in person, I think that there is that acceptance. But unfortunately, online, there is a lot of gatekeeping. And whether I see it towards myself or more often than not, I see it towards other people. There was even a post, Asexuality Awareness Day was like a few weeks ago. And there was a post that I saw that overall I thought was great. But one of the things it said is that not all asexual people identify with the queer label or want to be recognized as a part of the LGBTQ plus community. So don't make the assumption that an ace person is queer or wants that. And I do recognize that there are some people who are heteroromantic and don't feel like they for themselves need to take up space in the queer community. But I think there's a lot more damage in entering conversations with an ace person, assuming that they're not, rather than assuming that they are. And I would venture to say that a lot of the people who are ace that don't feel like they are a part of the queer community, it's because of this gatekeeping and this erasure. And so that was like a very uncomfortable narrative for me. Because if someone doesn't want to claim the queer label, let them tell you that rather than having kind of this pre-determined, like, thought that they're not. I don't know. It feels a little bit like putting labels on people, I guess.
0: It's interesting that you bring up that the people who might want this might lean towards being heteroromantic and this idea of wanting to pass, wanting to fit into heteronormative culture in that way and To some extent, I understand that as somebody who's gone through the phase of not wanting to be queer, but there's queerness that is an individual's queerness. And there's a queerness that is when you're in a relationship with a queer person, that this is a queer relationship. And so if that other person doesn't want to identify as being in a queer relationship, that there might be some tension there. Mm. Do you see that? Have you thought about that? Is this a question that only I think about, maybe?
2: (laughs) I think it's a really good point. Because yeah, I think I felt a lot of apprehension initially of feeling like I was in a mixed orientation marriage, but then also feeling like I was the only one that ever got to think about that and that like, I shouldn't bring it up. And I think there has been like an evolution of no shade to straight couples. But the more we hang out with straight couples, the more we're like, you know, it also sometimes is awkward. It feels like they have this assumption of who we are that isn't true. And it's fine. We have great straight friends. That's not what I'm saying. But that anytime someone else thinks they have an idea of who you are, and that's not true, I think there can be some tension there, like regardless of how good the relationship is, right? And I think I was the first one that kind of voiced that for my marriage of like, oh, like, it's fun to go and play games with these people, but also sometimes they're just so straight. <laughs> um, and,
0: it's awesome. Um,
2: my spouse was initially like, no, it's fine. And then a few nights ago, they were like, it's great to hang out with these people, but sometimes they're just so straight. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> it's probably Love been that. like a year since I said that the first time. And so I think like part of any relationship is leaving space for the fact that like, even if when you get married, you're on the exact same point about every issue, it's not going to stay that way. Like people learn and grow and change and develop. And like part of a committed long-term relationship is being able to accept that within reason. And so it would seem like an unhealthy aspect of a relationship to me if one person is saying, yeah, like. I'm queer and I feel like to me this is a queer relationship and the other person says no you can't say that. I think there has to be some mutual respect of okay maybe I'm not going to go and tell all of my friends that like I'm in a queer relationship but also maybe we don't go around and tell everyone that we're not. So like I think leaving room for people to grow together but also room for the fact that you might not always be comfortable with the same labels. And that's okay, but there has to be that respect that goes both ways.
0: I think this is such an important point, and I think that it's going to hit home for a lot of listeners who are in a similar marriage or in a similar relationship to have that language to talk with their partner about that. So thank you. Yeah. I do have at least one more question that how... Do we make our space like you've come to us, we can be we can talk pretty openly and blatant about how our space is sometimes not as welcoming to ace folks. How do we make that space better?
2: Yeah, let me think.
0: All the pressure onto <laughs> the queer person.
2: <laughs> Sorry. I think one of the things that just in any space, I think when we get past the point of excluding aces from the narrative the next place we reach is this assumption where all ace people are the same and the ace stereotype and this is another thing that makes it hard for people to claim the asexual label is that the stereotype is pretty introverted more excited about reading your books than about like maybe engaging with people and you really like cake and you really like dragons and I don't really know where the (laughs) dragons come from but that's like the stereotype (laughs) for an ace person and that maybe is something some people connect to I like pie better than cake and if I were a mythical creature I don't think it would be a dragon Um, and I'm also incredibly extroverted and so recognizing that just like you can have all sorts of different types of lesbians or pansexuals or anyone You can also have a wide spectrum of asexual people and everyone's experience with their asexuality is going to be a little bit different. And so I, I don't remember everything that was in like the episode that made me initially reach out to you guys. But I do think one of the things I remember was maybe Colette, I don't remember who, someone saying that you're not asexual because you do like making out with people sometimes. And I think that I sometimes like making out with people, one specific person, but (laughs) (laughs) that just because you're ace doesn't mean that might not be something you connect with, or maybe not so much in this space that's targeted towards at least people who have grown up in the LDS faith, but there are ace people who really enjoy porn or really enjoy masturbation. You can be sexual and be asexual, I guess. That sounds like a contradiction, but asexuality is more about being, it's about your attraction. You can be attracted to someone or not, but you can still be a sexual being even if you're not. There's a really, I guess I'd say famous, I don't know if well-known or famous, but she's a model and she's asexual and she's a lingerie model. And, And I know that a lot of the things she gets told or responded to people saying, like, you can't be ace because you're a lingerie model. But that is not the case like you can be asexual but also be like anything else you want to be or anything else that feels true to you so I think any space that's trying to be inclusive to ace people needs to remember and and acknowledge that I guess
1: and
0: talk with ace people and figure out what that means (laughs) for them because yeah it sounds like it's it, it can be very different for very different people as all three of us have shown
2: yeah
1: And that's one reason I love this podcast and just being able to share these stories. I think there will be similarities that people identify with. And just because we've had one ace person talk about their experience now, we've talked to one ace person. I think you've been great at sharing. These are some general things and this is me and there's other things out there too. And I know I still have a lot to learn. So thank you for educating us. I know we don't like putting marginalized people to have to educate others. So we really appreciate people who do take their time to be able to do this so that we can learn and be better. So thank you.
2: Yeah. Happy yeah, to you. have this conversation. I've loved this.
0: It's been really great. I've really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you.
2: Is there anything else that you have
0: that you wanted to add?
2: I guess the other thing I've been thinking about as I've been thinking about this podcast is like, what is it about the Latter-day Saint experience that makes asexuality difficult. Yes, Um, let's
1: talk about this.
2: (laughs) And (laughs) that's like, I think there is a lot there. And I think back to some of the things that have come to mind, just as I've been thinking about this is a lot of young women's lessons, which we can label like a lot of things that can be problematic about maybe some of the young women's lessons we had growing up. But I also think that experience was even different as an asexual person. I think about how, as someone who doesn't see bodies as sexual, like sexually all the time, it's been hard to mend that relationship with my own body, that like my body can be beautiful and okay, just how it is. And it, it, doesn't have to be inherently sexual or sexualized. I think about relief society lessons and how like it can be kind of frustrating to sit there sometimes as people are talking about marriage in a way that I'm never going to relate to. And so those are just like some jumping off points. But I think a lot of it has to do with those assumptions that like if you look straight, then you are and how that can feel very invalidating a lot of the time.
0: Yeah, it seems like ace folks who are showing up to Relief Society can be a really important way for people to interact with the queer community in a space that feels safe to them, but recognize that there are queer people sitting in your congregations who are in maybe mixed orientation marriages or queer marriages, however they want to define those marriages. And that is... That this assumption about what is happening in a marriage or happening in this space that we think of as straight space is not the generic thing that's going on. I think that's really helpful for folks to pay attention to just in their own congregations. So thank Mm -hmm. you for bringing that up.
2: Yeah, and like my case is that I I am married, but also how that's not going to be the case for every ace person or queer person that decides to say attending church every Sunday and so that can be like even more isolating if you're someone who knows that might not ever be the case for you but like the conversation never really acknowledges that in more than like sometimes it's like oh these poor people kind of way but that's like as far as we go and like that's not great either to have it only be brought up and and acknowledged in that way because yeah It's a beautiful experience. It's just like different than yours. Yeah. So that goes back
0: to the celebration that you're talking about the pride and wanting to put the sticker on your, on on everything, probably. Everything. (laughs) Yeah. Ace everything. Is that there is a sense that queerness isn't something to be ashamed of, even in a relief society setting that we have to make room for these, for everybody's experience. Mm Mm-hmm. The embodiment stuff is really interesting and talking about our bodies and our bodies are supposed to be celebrated in exactly what they're supposed to be in exactly what they're doing, exactly what we're, how we're experiencing our life. And I would love to hear you talk more about the embodiment problems within Relief Society. Can you explore that a little bit more?
2: Yeah. So there's obviously problems with purity culture and how we all especially as AFAB people get told that our bodies are something to be covered up and whether it's explicitly or implicitly said like ashamed of and I did a study abroad in Spain and we went to a bunch of art museums and I remember like our program director's wife being like I'm bringing my kids in today and I want to know how do I explain to them that they're gonna see a lot of naked people in these paintings and that's okay and so we had a conversation about how bodies are just bodies and like that was maybe when it clicked for me I hadn't fully come to realize anything about myself at that point but like kind of clicked for me that like bodies are just bodies and like bodies can be sexual like they can be used like sexually but they can also be used athletically or like in any other sort of way. There are no bad bodies and they're not something we should be inherently ashamed of. And there's, you might experience this, but I also don't know that much about Romania, but in in general, in Europe, there's a lot more acceptance for bodies. I think than in America, like you have sculptures in the, like the public parks of like nude people and here that would be like, an outrage and so recognizing that not everyone sees bodies the same way that I was maybe taught to but then also once I realized that and realized that it can be okay to like just think bodies are beautiful but not have that be something that has to be sexual there was a lot of untangling to do because as an ace person who was trying to fit in I think there might be ways we internalize this like sexualization of bodies more so than other people in a weird way. Like I remember this experience in high school where my friends and I were arriving to school in the morning and someone made the comment of, Oh, like he has such a cute butt. I don't think I could date someone that doesn't have a cute butt. And to me, I was like, what the heck? Like are butts supposed to be cute? Is this something I should be paying attention? Should I be looking at butts? Um, (laughs) And as a teenager who's trying to fit in, I'm like, I guess I got to figure out what a cute butt is now. <laughs> and I didn't even realize like how much that had impacted me until I was coming to terms with being asexual like years later. And then realizing that when I was walking around campus, I was still looking at people's butts, even though like at no point had that ever meant anything to me. <laughs> um, and so I, I think that's very funny. Um, but in my attempt to fit in, I was probably the one sexualizing people more than anyone else, including myself. And I think at this point, I feel like I've worked through that regarding other people, but I recognize recently that I still kind of feel like I need to like make sure I'm modest enough so that like I'm not perceived sexually and, and things like that, which is not how I want my relationship with this concept of modesty to be like, whatever that means for you. If it's like an attitude, if it's like how you dress, like whatever that means for you, I don't want it to be about other people. And I think that growing up in a space where I, to some extent knew that other people were sexual and I was not, and maybe I couldn't always pick up on those things I wanted to make sure that I wasn't being perceived in a way I didn't want to be perceived. And so there's a lot to unpack with that of recognizing that I'm not responsible for that. I'm not accountable for that. And also that maybe it's not the end of the world if someone does think that I look nice one day, you know? And so that's where I'm at now, just kind of trying to heal that like relationship with myself of how bodies aren't inherently sexual, but that includes my body too.
0: Wow. I think that is such an important note to bring up. Thank you for exploring that with us. It's something I hadn't even thought about. Kind of going off of that, can you talk a little bit about physical intimacy versus sex? There's a sexual attraction, but I imagine people who have a complicated relationship also with like physical intimacy or needing physical intimacy and people not understanding how that fits in with asexuality.
2: Yeah, I think that's something too that every ace person is going to have a different experience with. Some people don't want to be touched at all and that's just as fine as someone who is really into all sorts of physical things. There was a fireside I went to when we were newly married, and there was a lot of things that were problematic and that I did not like about it. But one of the things that I thought was a good point that she made is she talked about how there's sexual touch and not sexual touch. And of course, she framed it in like a very binary way of men, like the more not sexual physical affection you give to your wives, the more sexual physical affection you'll get. And so that's not great. But this concept of you can have a lot of physical touch that's not sexual is important. And I think something that we're kind of starved of as people, because there's a lot of and depending on like, your assigned gender at birth, like more so maybe for assigned male people than assigned female people, but like, you're not really allowed to have physical affection, unless it's something that has the potential to be like a sexual relationship, which I think there can also be a conversation about like, valuing different sorts of relationships more than others. But physical affection can be great and it doesn't have to be sexual. And when it's viewed as only sexual, I think that can be really damaging for everyone, but especially for ace people.
0: Yeah, I think so. I asked this because you you were talking about the differences between the U.S. and Europe. In Romania there's a lot more physical touch between friends and between family members and everyone. And it, that is something that actually really helped me come out was to be like, okay, it's okay to touch other people and it not be something sexual. (laughs) Like it doesn't have to mean anything. I can hold somebody's hand and it be just okay. And that was just like brand new for me. And it helped me kill a lot of parts of me that I think Mm -hmm. that we're so shut off from, like you said, that we shut ourselves off from that physical intimacy for just anybody.
2: For anyone. And an interesting experience I had with that before my mission, I had kind of this group, there was like five of us, like pretty close friends. And before I left on my mission, anytime we were watching a movie or doing anything, we all kind of just cuddled. And it was great, because it was just like, like that like non-sexual physical affection like you're talking about. And I think really met some of those just like connection needs that we all had. As soon as I left, the other four people paired off and started dating and stopped hanging out. And none of those relationships were healthy or lasted. But I think it, it kind of seemed like it happened because as soon as there wasn't a fifth person who, I think people can like get vibes. Like I think even before anyone knew I was asexual or what that was I think people would get ace vibes from me and so as soon as like the ace person leaves everyone else is like well I guess if we're gonna cuddle we gotta also be romantic about it and so the fact that we don't leave space to acknowledge that that can be acceptable and okay is not great in my opinion
1: I agree I agree I agree
0: wholeheartedly. And that's interesting about picking up on vibes of people. I feel that all the time, like that people knew lots about me before I knew about myself. Like they just got a vibe that that they tapped into that I didn't know about myself. So that's really interesting yeah. that you bring that up.
2: You mentioned earlier after coming out as non-binary that that has changed your relationship with men and you're able to kind of be one of the guys. And I think that as an ace person, I've always had that. I was on the soccer team growing up and when we'd have our skirmishes with the guys team, I was playing like one of the guys and then everyone else was like seeing this like, oh yeah, we're playing the girls, but like also Amelia's here. But I completely like very much identify as a woman. And and then also in college, like making friends, we'd all make the same friends, like me and my roommates with these guys. But then there'd be all of this like dating drama with everyone else and I would just be everyone's friend. so. I think there is something to be said for that. And it's one of the things I'm grateful for is just the way I think being ace has helped me to connect with a lot of different people in a way that sometimes frustrates me when I feel like other people can't connect in that way. I'm like, just be friends with people. But (laughs) (laughs) but that's something that like has always felt more accessible to me, I guess.
1: Can we talk just a little bit more about the Mormon ace intersection and how one thing that's coming to my mind, and I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but the idea of eternal increase. And I know we don't entirely know what that looks like, but a lot of people have in their mind, oh, that means I'm going to be pregnant for forever having babies if I am assigned female, right? That (laughs) sounds not like heaven to me. (laughs) And so just kind of that whole mentality of being ace, but you did mention earlier, like you never really had a desire to have kids. That may or may not be part of being ace for you. But just this whole, this is what a family looks like according to LDS doctrine, policy, however you view it right now, and how that fits for you.
2: Yeah, I think this is kind of a point where I'm like, exploring a lot right now. So these are like very half-baked thoughts. But as part of that Heavenly Mother discussion that you mentioned at the beginning, along with making sure that we're including queer people in that conversation. There's also been mention of making sure it's not like a white conversation, like making sure that like we're open to not just having a white straight heaven. And that has made me think about, especially with the things I'm learning in my classes right now, and with (laughs) Disney movie that just came out, Encanto, and also your podcast episode about the family proclamation and how that's based on like pretty recent propaganda ideology. And so... A lot of these things that are kind of coming together now, it's seeming less like heaven should be a place that is just about us and our spouse, whether that's like a straight or queer relationship. And if I have kids someday, who are the people I want involved in their lives? Yeah, me and my spouse, but like also my friends and my family. Like if my kids don't feel like those are people they can go to. I'm going to feel like I failed as a parent if I, and like, I didn't connect them to like these supports that I want them to have. And I was talking with like another ace friend this week about this. And she's saying a lot of what you're saying, like, that doesn't sound like heaven to me. I don't want to be popping out babies and then sending them away somewhere and feeling like I don't have any say over that. And I'm like, loosely calling this idea collectivist heaven. But it's like, this idea that maybe if our relationships in general are as important as I feel like we get told they are, then I don't think heaven can just be about you and your spouse and your billions of spirit babies. I think it also has to involve heavenly aunts and heavenly uncles and like heavenly best family friends. Like I think that all of this has to be involved and connected and I can only speak for like myself and, and this friend and like what she shared when we were talking about this, but she's like, yeah, I think that the idea of just popping around and helping out my friends' kids on those worlds sounds a lot more fun than having my own. And so not that we know like what this is really going to be like, this is all just stuff we're talking about, but it's opened a lot of possibilities for me and has brought a lot more joy thinking about this idea of an afterlife and a heaven in the way that we kind of talk about that I maybe hadn't experienced before. And so not, I don't know what my future is going to look like. I don't know what things are actually going to be like when we get there. But I think that all of our relationships are a lot more important than we maybe give them credit for. I think that our relationships with our friends, with our siblings, anyone, I think those are a lot more important than we maybe give them credit for. And I think that To me, there's no way that's not going to be important in the next life as well.
1: I love that. Collectivist heaven. I'm here for it.
0: Me too. (laughs) Me too.
1: This has been so wonderful. It's been really interesting just meeting new people on this podcast that we wouldn't have really interacted with otherwise. I'm so grateful that you reached out and that you agreed to join us. Any other last thoughts as we wrap up?
2: trying to think I think we hit on all of the things I'd kind of been thinking about okay
1: oh one other question if this resonates with people and they're like maybe I am ace do you have any resources to point them towards
2: that could help them yes I think this might not work for everyone but one of the things that was really helpful for me especially when I was like learning about all of these different terms and identities was looking for comics (laughs) If you like Google asexual comics, there's like a bunch of silly things that come up. Memes, I don't know. I feel like I learn a lot about the world through memes because you see a meme and when it hits home, you're like, oh, like I just learned something. So I think that finding ace Instagram (laughs) is great. There's a lot of good Facebook groups too. And so for whatever kind of phase of life you're in, there's like asexual singles groups. There's just like groups for like aces and people who are like in relationships with ACEs. So I would say just get online and find your people. But also like, I'm a believer in memes. I I think we learn a lot about ourselves through memes.
1: Oh, I'm so (laughs) here for memes. Thank you. Again, we really appreciate you taking your time and sharing your story to help others. This has been such a wonderful conversation for us. So thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you. This has been great.
0: Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you would rate and review Called to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you would share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at calltoqueer.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at call to Queer. See you next time.